Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Woj Pod from Las Vegas, site of the NBA Summer League. Here doing his first podcast, his debut, uh, Mike Budenholzer, the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, 2015 NBA Coach of the Year, won 60 games in a season in Atlanta. And now after five years with the Hawks, he is now in Milwaukee getting ready to coach Giannis Atunacompo, a really good core team that he inherits in Milwaukee. We'll talk to him about that, about the Atlanta years, about coming up as a young coach under Greg Popovich, and a lot more. Here's my visit with Bucks coach Mike Budenholzer. Mike, how are you, man? I'm doing well, Woj. Well, we're here in this uh, beautiful trailer, uh, some nice red leather decor couches here um, at Summer League. Uh, Mike, when you get to Summer League, like, it is probably, I mean, it is like the convention of the league. Everybody's here. But it's almost maybe the most relaxed setting of really any time of the year. You're past your season. You're not really near training camp. It feels like the one time of the year people can like sit around BS talk almost unlike any other time. Yeah, no, I mean, it's one of the the best times to kind of reconnect with people you've either worked with or you've known well over the years or you have respect for, and you just want to have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. And uh, there certainly is that just camaraderie, I think uh, around the summer league. And um, it's certainly, I think one of the, the best times to, you know, reconnect with people. How different, is your preparation or your first few months of becoming the head coach in Milwaukee and what you know is important now as a head coach, what you know as you start to put it together, how much different is it than when you walked into Atlanta having not been a head coach yet? Yeah, it's interesting. I've thought about that some and, and, you know, one of the biggest things that I guess you take after having done it for five years is just a little bit more confidence that I I, I can actually do this job. You know, you, you get your first job and, I think everybody's confident, maybe some more than others, but there's that little bit of, am I going to be able to do this? So I have the abilities. And um, so it's so great to just, you know, having seen players and staffs and teams, you know, be put together and do well and have success for five years. And, um, and the other big part of, you know, being a first time head coach is putting together a staff, a coaching staff. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's hard to put into words how important that is. And, you know, I was very, very fortunate to bring five of my six guys from Atlanta. And, um, you know, I knew that I wanted to do that and felt like there was a good chance that I was going to be able to come together. You know, so that's that's a huge part of, you know, whether you're getting your first job. And, and anytime you get a job to put together staff is so important. Um, you know, the thing that's been unique about Milwaukee is trying to figure out, you know, um, you know, how we can use Giannis and all the different things that they have on their roster and, it's a much more put together roster than I think when I went to Atlanta, there was a lot of question marks. We could go a lot of different directions and, um, you know, so, uh, you know, those are the few things that stand out to me. Uh, Giannis is here at summer league. You guys have spent time together. What have you learned about him in just brief time together? You haven't coached him yet, but what have you learned about him that, that you, you wouldn't have known when, when you walked into the job? Well, I, I think the, not just the words or, or the saying that he wants to be great. Um, he puts in the time and the work and, and the effort. It's, it's, he's blown me away with kind of his work ethic. It's, we've joked, it's, uh, he's a great problem. We may be 
trying to ask him to work a little bit less or, you know, trying to figure out how we can, you know, keep him where he's feeling great and his body's grown, his body's feeling well going into the season. Uh, his work rate and his work ethic is just off the charts. And, and it's all about wanting to be great, wanting to win, you know, once the team, the organization, it's just, there's a genuineness to it that unless you sit across the table from him or you're after a workout, you're talking with him. It, it just, you feel it. And, uh, that's what's blown me away. Yeah, they they say around the organization like there's like two places he is. He's well, he'll leave practice, he'll go home, and then like he'll come back and sometimes he'll work one of his younger brothers out there, and then the family will eat like in the bucks. You know, they have like the kitchen, like <laughs> yeah, the he's, players lounge. The players lounge. They come back and eat like he is. He's there. No, I mean he is the epitome of you know in the gym and putting in extra time and extra effort and. Uh, you know, talking with our strength and conditioning coach Suki the other day and she gives him all the credit in the world and how he, um, you know, allots time for lifting and, you know, doesn't want to lift before practice because he doesn't want to affect or, you know, be in any way tired or anything. And he doesn't want to lift after practice because he might be tired from practice. And when he, when he does something, he does it to the nth degree and whether it be lifting or practice or, you know, player development, uh, his work ethic is, it's just really special. Um, and you know, I've been a lot around a lot of great workers and it's just been a short time, but you know, this is a time when a lot of guys are, you know, maybe, you know, shutting it down a little bit or, you know, ramping up slowly. Um, just been blown away with how he works. His uniqueness. And I wonder when, whenever you're going to go coach a player, I would think, or a kind of, you, you think back to, well, I've seen this player here and here's how they use them or here's how I've used them or somebody I respect. Is there a comparable for him when you look at him and you imagine the possibilities of the ways to use him? Do you have a comp for him? I really don't. You know, I think he, you know, it's probably some, some compilation of multiple players and, you know, most of them you think of are great. And so I'm not going to use their names or put that kind of pressure on him or anything, but it's, it's been probably, uh, one of the most exciting things as a basketball coach to figure out how you're going to use this guy who's just so uniquely gifted, so uniquely talented and can do so many different things that it is, it's really hard for me to, to think of a guy who is like Giannis or can do the things. And hopefully we can put him in positions to kind of take advantage of all those unique skills and, you know, I've, I've told some of the, the coaches and people in the organization, it's, you know, it's going to be, he, it's going to take me some time to learn Giannis. It's going to take some things, some time for Giannis to learn the things that, you know, I think are important and how he's maybe going to go to another level and, and, and continue to improve and get better. And, um, for that process to get started really already this summer. And, you know, hopefully it's something where he and I are getting better and better, you know, with each year and for a long time. There were a lot of jobs open this spring. And when you became free in Atlanta, um, you know, you talked to Toronto and you were talking to Milwaukee. And I think there were other opportunities out there. Uh, you talked to Phoenix. Listen, there, there's you can make a case. Usually there's one or two things about every job that might be appealing some more than others. When you looked at the landscape, was the chance to coach him as much of a pull as anything that was available to you? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's, I think there's so many things that kind of fell into place as the more I learned about Milwaukee, the more time I spent with John Horst, the GM and with ownership. And, um, it, there's a lot of things that are going, you know, in a really positive direction there. 
but there's no doubt, you know, the, the opportunity to coach Giannis and, you know, one of the top players in our league and, you know, maybe the top player in the East, uh, you know, we, we often joke that we're only as good as our players. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, hopefully I'm smart enough to, to find some great players and hopefully help them get organized and be, you know, be the best they can be. But Giannis was a huge pull, but, you know, Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe and Malcolm Brogdon and Thon and, um, you know, you keep, you could keep going down the, the roster, Tony Snell and, um, you know, just the whole group. Um, I think it's a group that's, you know, ready to, to, I think, have more success. They've, they've done well and they want to take it to the next level. You know, you, when you take over in Atlanta and you haven't been a head coach before and every assistant goes through it, there's a, you believe and you're prepared, but there's, there's that pit in your gut going, like, I hope I can do this, right? Like, are there, when you're, a, when you're starting out and you haven't coached yet, like, are there like recurring nightmares a coach has? Are there like, I used to have dreams of like, I can't get access to like, I have a, either I'm getting beat on a story or I can't get access to like post something, whatever uh, things that would your just computer uh, locks up, whatever it is, something that's keeping me or, you know, you're running underwater, right? Like we all do coaches have those. Like, it's like, it's, it's like a 30 to 0 run to start the game. And I don't even like, I can't call a timeout. Do, do you go through that as a coach? No, well, I mean, you know, I think if you're reflecting back to being a first time head coach and some of those things that give you some, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, you're just, you know, the nightmares or anxiety, you know, I think always the first time you address a team, you know, when you're going to, you know, have that first training camp and, you know, what are you going to teach first and what are your priorities and, you know, how do you find your voice as the head coach and you command the whole gym and, or, you know, the first time you meet with a team, maybe before media day, you know, there's, there's anytime you're kind of having one of those first moments, you know, it's a first meeting with a team. It's a first practice with a team. It's a first teaching session, you know, even a first preseason game, to be honest with you, you know, you're that, that first preseason game, you're, you're a little bit it's like, okay. And then of course, opening night. Um, but then after that, you know, hopefully you kind of settle in and, um, you know, you, that preparation and the work that put it, you put in, you know, to get from an assistant to be a head coach, you, I think you just fall back on that and trust your gut, trust your instinct and, you know, ha- have a great staff, empower them. And they take a ton of pressure off you, you know, let them do a lot of the work. And, uh, so it's, it's been good, but no, there's, there's a, there's a, I'll, it'll be similar in Milwaukee, you know, first time addressing a team in Milwaukee, first, first, uh, home game in Milwaukee and those kinds of things, uh, it's part of what makes sports great and coaching great and competition great. You know, you, you, I think it uh, creates a little bit of that, you know, something in your gut. Mike, in Atlanta, like there's been, I don't want to say there were almost like three different jobs within one. You came in working for Danny Ferry and then Danny was let go. And then you became, you had the dual title of president and coach. And then you were without the title for a year at the end. Does it feel like one five-year run or did it feel like, Three different jobs, three different real phases when you look back on it. Yeah. You know, this summer I think is, you know, put me in a position to kind of go back and, and look at those five years and either good or bad. I don't tend to look back very much or very often. Um, but I think in this case, it was good to, to go back and kind of reflect on it. And, um, I certainly, it, it was, um, I don't know. It felt good and felt really positive to think about all the good work that Danny, um, and Wes as an assistant GM and, and myself as a head coach did that first summer, um, you know, signing Paul Millsap and Damari Carroll and, 
you know, I still remember convincing Kyle Korver to stay in Atlanta, um, as a free agent. And there was, and Jeff Teague, you know, matching a, matching a, an offer sheet from Milwaukee, you know, of mm-hmm. all places. Right. And, uh, you know, there were so many, I think, good decisions that were made that summer and then really collaborative way um, that was very similar to what I'd kind of, you know, been used to forever. I mean, if somebody would have told you and Danny Ferry, when you walked in the door, he hires you and you come in that we're like 18 months away from having a 60 win team. I mean, when you look back, it was remarkable and doing it with the pieces you did it. No one saw that coming. Yeah, no. And it's, it's funny because I think there were some of us that were so optimistic and probably idealistic and, we were signing all these players that we really believed in and, and we, we felt like if we put them together, it could work. And I, there's nobody more idealistic than me. And, uh, I, I don't think I thought it was going to be 60 wins or anything like that. And, you know, and the, the, the next summer, it, it may be a couple of signings that doesn't get the excite, the league excited, but you had a Tabo Cephalosha, you had a Kent Bazemore. And then you, you go in and that year you went 60 games with, and a Pero Antich from the summer before and all those guys, Shelvin Mack and Mike Scott. And, um, there was just so many good things that happened, you know, while Danny and Wes and myself were all working together and, uh, and really led to that 60 win group. Um, that was pretty special. And, um, you know, it's, it's a time and a, and a run that, you know, I'll certainly always remember and be grateful to be a part of it, but. Um, you know, I think so much credit, you know, goes to everybody that was involved in that. And, you know, to kind of go through the season, uh, some of us used to joke, you know, we, we didn't have a boss or we was like, you know, we were at recess for, for all season. <laughs> you know, the team was up for sale and, you know, I, I guess I technically was in charge and, you know, so, um, you know, everything just kind of fell into place. It was a great year and, um, you know, but so much credit to Danny and, and really everybody that helped put uh, put that group together. We mentioned Danny Ferry, and he's working as a really consultant in New Orleans, works along with Dell Demps and gives him input, and I think with, with their guys there. Listen, he certainly paid a price for what happened there. Um, there's no question about it. Are you surprised he's not a GM again? Do you imagine that, like, when you really look at what you guys did in Atlanta, it was remarkable. And, and he's come close. He's interviewed for jobs. Philly, Brooklyn didn't get him. Maybe another one or two. Would you have thought he might have gotten another opportunity by now? Well, I mean, he certainly has the skill set. He has the vision. He has the leadership skills. He has the communication skills. He has everything it takes to be a GM. So, you know, I think, you know, how our league works and why things happen and don't happen are kind of beyond me. I, you know, I probably try and, you know, figure out hopefully how I can survive and, um, you know, keep moving forward. But, uh, there's no doubt. I think Danny's proved that, you know, he's, he's a heck of a GM with great skills and, um, great passion and, you know, high character and all those things. So, um, you know, there, I think he has a, a, a great track record that he could stand on and, um, you know, certainly should give him opportunities in the future. Support for the Woj Pod comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make, but today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. 
This gives you the strength of a cash buyer making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate up for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that lower new rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Woj. That's rocketmortgage.com slash Woj. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. When you're... Maybe your program kind of turned where it looked like there was a moment there where you guys could have gone a little bit higher on an Al Horford offer, really just several million dollars. I remember that negotiation being one where, as I understood at the time, typically in almost every experience I've had in covering a negotiation, when someone's like five or six million apart on a number that big, it will get done. And sort of both sides held their ground and and they went to Boston. Um, and then you guys make a decision to bring Dwight Howard in. <laughs> was that the beginning of the end of where, of what you had there and what you had built? Um, do, do you look at that point and say, okay, that's where it went in a really different direction for me? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that Al was such an integral part of kind of the culture of the team and so important to, you know, so many things that we had done and, and that, you know, created a lot of our success. And he and Paul were almost equals and, you know, but Paul was still under contract and there were so many, you know, tough decisions to be made and things to, you know, try and weigh one against the other and direction and, and, and all those sorts of things. And, um, you know, those, those decisions are, you know, beyond difficult. And, um, you know, you look back and, and sometimes you wish things maybe had, certainly gone a different direction or maybe you'd done something a little bit different, whether it be me or anybody involved on both sides of it. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, certainly from Atlanta's perspective, my perspective, ownership, everybody, I think everybody thinks the world of Al Horford and, you know, he's gone on to have a couple of great years and, um, you know, I think Atlanta's going in a direction that, you know, they feel is best for them and what's, uh, you know, and, but it, it was, I think, probably the 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 move or the start of the sequence of events that you know put all of us probably where we are today you guys were in that incredibly difficult position of we can stay really good don't know that we could be better than cleveland um we haven't beaten them nobody had beaten them but there's the coach in you that knows the kind of team you want to coach which is a good one that's gonna be in the playoffs there's an executive looking at the long view going has this group topped out it's easy when you just gut it or you, when you're really bad or really good, it's maybe easier when you're in that middle place. Was that torturous when, especially when you had both jobs and you're looking short view versus long view? Boy, do I really want to coach in the lottery for a few years? Do I want to, when I've, when we've been in a conference final and all that, like it just seemed like it was a, um, kind of a perilous place to be. Well, I mean, I think it's perilous, you know, if, if there's not an appreciation for, you know, maximizing a group and really getting the most out of them. And if it's, if it's championship or bust, if that's kind of an organization or, 
And certainly a fan base wants to, to know and believe that you're pushing for a championship and that's your ultimate goal. And, you know, I think those teams, uh, you know, whether it, it be, you know, an Atlanta team or other teams that have been built similarly, um, nobody is just handing over a series or handing over championships. And we all feel like uh, we're in the mix. And so, you know, I, I think that, um, there's an argument or there's, you know, when you're, you have really good teams to, to keep them together and keep pushing the envelope and keep seeing if you can knock that door down. And, you know, there's been other, you know, Detroit. I mean, how many times did it take them before they beat Boston or the Chicago teams to beat Detroit? And, you know, certainly those teams had maybe great players and it was just a matter of time. And you know, there's so many different ways you can look at it, but I, I think to have teams that are, you know, having a lot of success in the regular season, a lot of wins, advancing in the playoffs, Teams with great character that, you know, I think the fan base and the city could be proud of. Um, you know, that's maybe that's what probably made it even harder. Yeah, uh, it's hard know. to tear that down. People, and I just think people take for granted how hard it is to rebuild and how lucky you have to get and how you can get stranded in that for years. We're seeing teams in that. And like the, uh, there's become this perception, I think, in the league that there's something wrong, like Portland's there. They won almost 50 games last year. They were third in the West. And you hear people going, tear it down. You're going, they could get lottery pick after lottery pick and never get a Dame Lillard, never get another CJ McCollum. And it's just, I'm, I'm shocked at that mentality in the league, but it seems more prevalent. Yeah. I, I agree that it's more prevalent and I'm probably, you know, a little bit with you. If, if you're expressing some shock or, or frustration, it, I think, you know, if you've been around the league a long time, you followed it, you know how hard it is. And, um, it's just when you have, you know, a great player like a Damian Lillard and even, and, and a CJ McCollum and you're winning 50 plus games in the Western Conference, you know, it's, it's, it's hard if there's, if, you know, if, if the only team that's celebrating, the only team that we appreciate is the one that's standing at the end of the year. It's, I guess it's, it, it's, it's a tough business. It's what we all signed up for, but. You know, I, I do have some of that idealistic, you know, there's something to be said for a team that, that plays well all year, that competes well, that plays together. Um, you know, night after night is kind of giving you everything they got and maximizing what they have and, um, and, and trying to make progress. So, uh, but you know, I think there's a, um, I don't know if it's society or there's a culture change and people want instant gratification or, you know, other sports, it seems like football and baseball, they can maybe flip things quicker and, and have, uh, you know, things change where basketball, you know, you have to have some of those special players and you have to hit that guy in the lottery. And it's just a lot harder to flip it. Um, and, you know, there's one or two examples, you know, those, everybody holds on to those ones, but the uh, 15 or 20 others that are still trying, you know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. those yeah. are difficult. Yeah. And I, and I think too, you having experience doing both jobs. Um, you were with Pop for a long time when, while Pop was doing both jobs, I think people, he had a GM and RC Buford that allowed him to just coach and he could ultimately make a decision. But he, I think as the years went on, he put more and more trust to where RC was just running it. And, but that takes years and years to get to that point. The burden that you feel when you're coaching and now you've got these, you've got to make ultimate decisions on player personnel and you've got to run the draft room. And was it more? Uh, more encompassing than you could even imagine. Do you have to go through it to really understand that like, these are really two different jobs. Well, you know, I think, you know, the reference point to, to San Antonio and, 
Um, you know, I feel so fortunate to have been there. You know, I joke I was I was before Duncan. You know, there aren't very many people that can <laughs> that can be pre Duncan or before Duncan and uh and remember, you know, and actually Pop is just the GM and and then he became coach and GM and and how he fostered the culture in the in the organization and fostered the relationships with ownership and um, you know, won a first championship uh in ninety nine and everything that he was doing back then. And, and it was a different league. It was a different time. So, um, you know, and then RC just grew and grew and it really became where RC, you know, he was, I mean, I always joke, it's unfair. They have the best GM or one of the most incredible GMs, top two, three GMs, if not the best. And they got one of the, you know, the best coach in the league. And you can't have both those things <laughs> in the same organization. And it really became where, yeah, you know, Pop, I think ultimately had the decision, but RC was, you know, doing every bit of everything on a day to day basis. So, and then when I fast forward to Atlanta, um, you know, I think trying to actually do it more of the later model and, and I didn't feel, um, you know, overwhelmed or that it was just, uh, too much, um, put a lot of faith in, in the GM and, and, you know, that, and, um, you know, I think there were some good things that happened during that, that time or that two or three year windows. And there's some things we'd probably like to do differently or could have back. And, um, when you decide to go another direction and, and rebuild, it's, I don't think it's the model. It's probably not the model at any time, but certainly if you're going to, if you're going to go back and kind of start from scratch, um, it's probably not a good a good model to uh, to go through that time period in an organization. When you now look in Milwaukee at the relationship you want to have with John Horst, with you know you have owners who, who are they're active owners, they're they're in it, right? And so, are you better for some of the turbulence you had in Atlanta to say like? There's got to be alignment here, or this can't work. It doesn't matter whether we have Giannis or Chris. It doesn't matter who we have. New Arena. It doesn't matter if I can't be aligned with these guys. Yeah, there's no doubt that I think I'm going to be a better coach. I'm going to be a better partner, uh, be better, you know, just for everything. Um, you know, whether it be the turbulence, the success, whatever it is from the last five years, um, I've learned hopefully a lot and, um, grown from the mistakes I've made. And, uh, you know, John Horst is the GM and, and, uh, Wes Edens and Mark Lassery and, and Jamie Diamond as the owners, you know, the principals. They've been great so far. Um, the energy with the front office and John has just been off the charts. Uh, it, it just feels like a great fit. Um, you know, their, their work ethic, kind of their process, the way he includes people and does everything. And, and really the way they, I think they genuinely want and value, you know, kind of, um, you know, my opinion, my vision for how we want to play, what kind of players are going to fit and balance that with what they think, you know, that they've been watching this team for, you know, some of them for quite a while and what it needs. And so I couldn't be happier with kind of the synergy between John and myself and his entire staff and diving in with them. And, um, you know, I think they probably are laughing at me on in some of the meetings and some of the crazy things that I think and see, but, you know, I think we're all open to, you know, everybody's ideas. And, um, you know, I think that's how you get the best out of a group, uh, you know, get a lot of smart people in a room, you know, empower them, make them feel like they matter and, and their opinions are, are important. And um, it could come from anywhere, uh, a great idea. And so I feel like that's what's happening in Milwaukee. Where do you get ideas from? Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I'm sometimes in the middle of the night. I, you know, I 
have a notepad or I, I, I need to have one all the time and, um, you know, watch different things. I love European basketball. I love to watch, you know, players and coaches. And, um, you know, I think there's some things that I just valued from, you know, growing up and in college and watching the Spurs for a long time. And, you know, I think while I was young and early in the NBA, there were some, some, you know, whether it be the Chicago Bulls or Utah Jazz with Phil Jackson, Jerry Sloan and things that they did. And there were just, I think, a lot of great influences in my life that I've hopefully tried to pull some of it and make it my own a little bit. And, uh, you know, and it's always evolving, like you mentioned earlier. Your dad was a highly successful high school coach in Arizona. Vince, grew up, you grew up around it. What's it like growing up, the son of a coach, a successful coach? You're a player. Is it every day, all day? Is is the immersion just this is this was our life? This is our life. This is what it's. This is what we do. A little bit, and and certainly sports. Sports were a huge part of our lives, and grew up in a small town. And when you grow up in a small town, I think it's a gift. You get, you know, you play football, you play basketball, you play golf. I, I played baseball, golf. And so, you know, you were constantly, you know, playing and competing. And to some degree, my dad was constantly coaching me and pushing me and encouraging me and my mom too. You know, we, in my family, we joke a lot. My mom actually doesn't get enough credit or she, she deserves way more credit than my mom and than my dad. But, uh, you know, there was no doubt that basketball for him was a passion. I remember him, you know, it, it's different. I saw a coach doing it a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, the, uh, the old magnets, yeah. you know, moving the players on the magnets and, uh, where was I? But anyways, I, I, I had a chance to ask the player that he was, I said, how, oh, it's Boston College. We had, you know, I think Jerome Robinson and I think the coach at Boston College just uses yeah. the magnets. And I said, how did you follow it? How did my dad used to do that? I couldn't <laughs> follow him. He's like, I just knew which number I was and I just watched that number and I, you know, went around the board and, so and I remember going to my dad's practices and, you know, watching him watch film and things like that. And um he was a huge influence on me and just being around sports and knowing what sports could do for you and how it could, you know, help you, you know, just grow and mature and um develop, you know, work ethic and leadership skills and all those things. Um Yeah, I was I was so lucky to have a dad that was a coach. And you mentioned playing everything, which. I think happens less now. I think kids, there's this feeling among parents that we need to specialize. I think it's wrong. I think there's great value in a not getting burned out, but sort of learning leadership in other sports and having different roles on other teams. And I think the thought has changed, but like the guy you grew up with, like you played everything and like there was value to it. It's such a conundrum because um, I 100% agree with you. But now I have, uh, you know, four children and, you know, watching them try and navigate, you know, making a making a junior high team or making a high school team or, you know, getting to play and getting, uh, you know, to contribute. And it is it's a tough decision because I with my oldest son, I, you know, we played everything, did it. And, and he was good, but you kind of saw some of the other parents or some of the other kids that spent all their time on one sport were totally focused on that. And, uh, I a hundred percent wish it was, uh, you know, yeah. where and, you could and play. You know, and you know what too is, bud, like, I think when you're the great athlete, the basketball coach isn't going to give you crap because you're playing football. When you come back over to hoops, you'll be ready. But when you're sort of 
a role player marginal, you're going to get, well, if you're not here, I want a 12 month a year commitment out of you. And those are the guys who probably struggle doing it. The great player can do whatever he wants. Yeah, no, that's what, and especially, you know, I probably, you know, out in the small, you know, towns like I grew up in, it's probably maybe still the same way it used to be. But if you're in a, a bigger city or, you know, for us, you're in an NBA city and you're in a high school with a, you know, a lot of competition. It's I've, I've actually, you know, kind of had to shift my ideals and my younger one, I'm actually a little more specialized, a little more focused, but he's, he, he wants to play football. So I'm going to let him play football and, you know, but it's it for parents that, that grew up like we did, or I did, you know, and, and believe in playing multiple sports it's tough when all of a sudden they don't make a team or they're not good enough to get on the court. And you kind of wonder, wow, should I have maybe just right. kept them in one sport? It's, uh, it's interesting how sports has, you know, evolved and, and how good I had my sixth grader at this camp. I'm blown away with what sixth graders can do ball handling, shooting. <laughs> I'm just like, this is insane. And, uh, so, you know, I think some people are critical of, of youth sports or youth basketball. And I can tell you, I was in a gym last weekend and, I couldn't be more impressed with kind of what kids can do these days. This episode of the Woj Pod is also sponsored by SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has never been easier thanks to SeatGeek. They've created an amazing app and website that makes ticket buying easier than it has ever been. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you never miss a deal. And more importantly, you aren't wasting time. You can even set alerts for upcoming events. And they'll let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I use it all the time. SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. You get to see the full ticket price from start to finish, and they never surprise you with big fees when you check out. And now here's the best part about SeatGeek for all of you out there listening. To the Woj Pod. My listeners who make their first SeatGeek purchase get a $20 rebate. And to get it, all you have to do is download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, then enter promo code Woj. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It does not get any easier than that. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Woj today. Guys who've gone and, and, I think especially San Antonio, um, I've always heard some interesting perspectives on this. You came up in the video room and you go from being a video guy to a coach. And now the way you interact with Greg Popovich is different. What is it like to go just, you take orders, you do video to where now you're supposed to have a voice. Now you're supposed to speak up in meetings. Is that the biggest transition you, you made in coaching or maybe guys from that program made? Because it's not easy with him when you're trying to figure it out. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those great challenges in life where pop doesn't, uh, uh, I guess I'll just say he doesn't like people who have a lot to say or, you know, speak too freely or too often. You know, that's one of the quickest ways to probably be shown the exit. And then if you don't have any personality, if you don't ever say anything, he's like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, <laughs> doesn't he care? Does he have any personality? Doesn't he have any thoughts or ideas? So you're just sitting there saying, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk or if I'm supposed to keep my mouth shut or what I'm supposed to do. And you just, you know, it's, it's such a, and to watch the young video guys and, and I definitely went through it. Um, and I'm sure I was probably known as, I probably pushed the envelope 
for sure as I got older with, with, you know, saying probably too much and pop wanted to show me the exit, but, uh, but for the young guys to figure out, you know, when to say something and when's appropriate and not overstep their bounds. And there's such a, uh, I would say a premium on, you know, not, not speaking up too often or, or, or at the wrong time. And, uh, but you certainly have to find your moments and that's, you know, how you're going to kind of, earn pops respect and really the whole coaching staff's respect and everybody. And, and he wants, he wants personality. He wants fresh ideas. And um, he just makes you think about it a little bit before you speak. Would you like, so let's say there's, you know, there's going to be a coaches meeting in the morning and you've got something. I've seen this. I think either we could do it differently or there's another idea, whatever. Like, do you like, do you, do you like prepare? Do you talk into your mirror the night before? Do you practice? <laughs> do you practice how this is going to come out of your mouth? And then is it like, do, do, do you have to do some of that? Well, the thing I, I, a little bit of that, I was always obsessive about how you present something to pop. Like it just, if there was, you know, cause, and, and we would do, you know, not just scouting reports. Sometimes I would, you know, and, and all assistant coaches do this. We're not, you know, different, but. You know, if, if it wasn't worded the right way or, you know, he, he'll correct your grammar. He'll correct the comma or a period or, and, uh, and just even how it was formatted. And so I would spend a, a significant amount of time making sure whatever it was I was going to present to him was perfect. And I would choose my, hopefully to do my best to choose the right words, be respectful, but be, you know, thoughtful, all those things, which is part of why, you know, when you work for a pop, you, you become just so much better. I would say he cuts through the, he's cuts through all the bullshit. Like if you're going to, if something you're writing is full of BS, he just, he'll stop reading it. If you're talking and he's like, he just cuts. And so it teaches you mentally how to just figure out what's important and what's not. And that's kind of what he takes to the team. So when you go to a coach's meeting, you got to figure out, okay, I'm only going to say what's really important. Anything else? Like you're just, you're, you're on thin ice. And, uh, so I think that's, that helps all of us be great. You know, it's funny you mentioned that Steve Clifford and I were talking about this a couple months ago about he had learned this from Jeff Van Gundy when he was, I think Steve was becoming like a division two head coach for the first time and got like a half an hour with Jeff when Jeff was coaching the Knicks and they really didn't know each other before Jeff would hired him years later. And the best advice he got early was never don't talk just to talk to the players because if you're all about, play hard, do this. They're not listening anymore. So when you have, or when you call the team in, it better be something substantial. Like, and it seems like an obvious thing, but that's got to be learned over time as a coach, how to do that. Because like I said, you can't, it's got to have impact or it just becomes part of the furniture. Yeah, yeah. just noise. And that that's, you know, I think especially with, with NBA players and professionals, uh, and it's, it's hard because I think every, Every coach, you, you feel like you're supposed to every day come up with something motivating or something, you know, super insightful. And reality is you're probably not going to do it. And, uh, and so I think to keep things, you know, fairly simple, fairly clean to the point, um, I think the players actually respect and, and crave that more than anything. Then, you know, if you're just talking to Phil Air, trying to come up with something, it, it's, it's, uh, after a while, it, it doesn't have much of a shelf life in my kind of experiences, observations. And that's for sure. I think part of why Pop has been able to just have such sustained success is, you know, he's, there's, it's, it's very, you know, kind of direct to the point. Um, there's not a lot of fluff or, you know, extra 
noise and you know i think pro, pro, especially pros and guys that you know are intelligent and everything i think they really respect that and and when you do speak it's more powerful do, do nba coaches motivate players or do you just get motivated players and play them i mean like can you motivate in the at that level is it does it does it I'm, I'm a little more the latter that, you know, you, you seek out players that are self starters and you seek out players that are, you know, really, you know, competitors is the word, you know, I like to use. We use a lot. Um, you know, real competitors are usually, you know, self motivated, but I, I do think, um, you know, great coaches, you know, are also motivators and there's no doubt as, as, uh, as much as, you know, all, all coaches, um, you know, try and probably downplay it a little bit. Motivation is part of it, even, you know, at the highest levels at our level and finding ways to keep guys engaged. You know, I, you know, read and, and listen to Steve Kerr and, you know, how is he going to keep the Warriors engaged after, you know, four straight finals and three championships and how does he motivate them? And, you know, each, each coach, you know, me going to Milwaukee, how are we going to motivate this group? And, um, I, I don't lean on that card very hard, but I think to say that there's none of that or it's, it's not part of, uh, you know, my responsibilities or any coach's responsibilities was probably be, uh, you know, unwise also. You stayed in the Eastern Conference, um, Atlanta to Milwaukee and LeBron's run in the East of eight straight conference championships. What was your immediate emotion when you say he's going to the Lakers and you go, and it's not like the East is easy. We got Boston no. and Philly, but is there a part of you that just goes, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could lie to you and this would be, I already figured this was going to be the most boring podcast you've done of all these. And, and, uh, so I will be completely, yeah, sure. I mean, the guys, the guys unbelievable. And, you know, I've said it because so many years being in the Western conference, um, and, and a few times matching up against LeBron in the finals, but now having been in the East and playing them, you know, more often during the regular season. And then of course, you know, just running up against them in the, He's phenomenal. I, the, the, my respect level for him couldn't be any higher. His IQ, which is, you know, I think the thing I probably, I, I just love really high IQ players and just, it's, it's, it's a little part of the game that fascinates me. I don't think there's a smarter, higher IQ guy that I've ever seen that's ever played the game. Uh, it's mind boggling to me how he sees the court and passes the ball. So to say that, you know, he's not going to be in the eastern side of the bracket. And, uh, you know, I feel like Milwaukee, we, we got a hell of a roster. We got a hell of a team. And, you know, um, you know, we're going to be battling it out in the east. And the fact that he's not there, I don't have any problem with it. When you would sit with your coaching staff and you'd be preparing, most 